Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. This podcast is for you if you have an insane drive to find the truth of things. It's not the good answers that we seek, but the good questions. I interview a range of different guests from many different fields, all with the intention to uncover the simple truths that are hidden in plain sight. Most people don't want to go there. I go there. My guests go there, and you benefit. Please let me know if you enjoy these episodes, and as always, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the podcast. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest today is Camilo Acosta. He is an AI investor, ex- uh, Facebook generative AI, and exited CEO slash founder. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So what has been the craziest, most interesting thing that you've learned about AI in the past week? Oh, wow. <laughs> interesting question. Um, I think I'm always astounded when there's breakthroughs, particularly in like the medical field, when I hear about AI being able to detect or predict uh, eventual maladies. You know, you know, usually right now it's like cancer detection. Uh, I always find that just astounding. Um, it's pretty, it's pretty cool to, to see that kind of progress, uh, for just humanity's sake. And, uh, so you've heard of some, a recent AI prediction for maladies, like, uh, uh, cause that's the really big question. You know, if we take it back to the enlightenment science kind of cr- created a world where people expected, uh, theories to be predictive. Um, and mm-hmm. then, and then, and, and it actually goes further back than that. Cause it's also about evolution, like. Uh, there's this great theory called predictive processing by Carl Friston. Um, and he talks about how each individual cell in all our bodies is trying to predict the next second or the next moment. So in not only in human body, but every, every other cell in the, in the, in the universe. And, you know, so predictions seem so important. And now we've got this, mm-hmm. this intelligent agent who's, who's our always on 24 seven and can it predict things? Um, right. That's that's the that's a very interesting question. And what do you think? Do you think this is this we're at the stage now where this intelligent agent is predictive? Uh, yeah, and I think that's a it's a really interesting topic you've touched on because ultimately AI as it exists today is really a prediction machine, right? So even when we talk about generative image and generative text, it's really just predicting what you want. Uh, you're, you're, you're saying you're, you're prompting it right through this, like natural language interface saying, Hey, draw me this, or what is the answer to this? And it predicts what it is that you want to see or hear, et cetera, or read. So that's like the most basic elements I think of, of, of AI, as we think about it today, the future of, of that is, all right, don't just predict something, but now do something about it. That's like the next level of intelligence is the action. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, in decision-making, you know, we have like a, sort of this like three-step process uh, of, of understanding, of predicting, like what is the predictive data, making, creating a judgment based on that and then acting on that. And so to date with what we've seen in, in AI, particularly generative AI, we're seeing a lot of that like predictive element and it's still up to the human to say, uh, yes, now I think we should do X, Y, or Z based on this prediction. And then X, Y, or Z, that that judgment means the following steps need to be taken. That's like the action component. Um, and so we're still in the predictive element, but like the prediction is just getting better and better and better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, like these examples in healthcare where now AI can actually predict just based on seeing like a lung cancer, or sorry, a lung 
image uh, of a, a patient, they can predict this person's going to get cancer in a year and in this particular place in the lung before it has even occurred, right? So now it's still up to the human to say, okay, this is either true or not true. And these are the steps we're going to take uh, to mitigate for that. Uh, but eventually AI will be able to do all three. That's super interesting. Was that like in a paper that you saw or an actual company that's doing that? Because that seems like pretty big. Uh, if, if, yeah. uh, if, if an MRI can predict lung cancer or yeah. something like that and then flag it to an investigator, that sounds like a pretty big deal. Yeah. So the, these a lot of these advancements are being done at Mayo and at the Harvard Boston uh, hospitals because um, they have the data, right? And they've been they've been mm. they've been doing these studies for a while. And I think that's one of the challenges also for up and coming companies is like how do you make an impact in the space when um, you don't have the data? Um, and so the right now what you're seeing in healthcare a lot is is folks that have the data being able to have this impact through, through their work. Um, but, you know, there's other ways around that. I saw a company this week that is actually in the healthcare space and what they're doing is robotic, AI robotic surgery. And what they did is they took um, images, they took video recordings of, uh, of these surgeries in Bulgaria. So they're like totally outside of the HIPAA realm uh, and using that data to, to train their models. And so there's ways around it, right? Uh, but again, right now, the folks that have this data are the, the big clinics and hospitals. Yeah, that's really interesting. And and it goes, it's go, it's almost like the life cycle of big data. Nobody talks about big data anymore, but you know, I think it was <laughs> 2007, 2008, everybody was talking about big yeah. data, big data is everywhere. Um, yeah. and, uh, and now we're at that, the, the kind of like fruition of it, of course, everybody's forgotten the term, but like people who have the data sets are now the ones who can benefit from this AI. And it's so interesting because I guess like 10, 20 years ago, you had companies like the internet, for example, most companies didn't immediately go to the internet because they were yes. wary of innovation. But now it seems like it's a totally different playing field and that every single company is thinking about AI and how do we implement AI? Is that accurate? Would you say? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, to me, from a big company perspective, it feels like the shift to mobile, uh, where most companies made the shift to mobile pretty seamlessly. Uh, some did not and, and, and died as a result. Um, but from a big company perspective, it feels like a sustaining technology in the US, uh, where they're aware that this is something that they have to do, because if you don't move to an AI first tech, tax, tech, tech stack, someone else will come along and do so uh, and eat your lunch, uh, because AI first tech stacks allow for not just better products and there's a lot of like product magic that can happen on the front end, but fundamentally there's just a lower cost structure because there's a lot of automation. So now you have to employ less people, which means that you can offer a lower price. So you're just much more competitive if you have an AI first tech stack and, and companies get that right off the bat. And certainly in this environment, this macroeconomic environment where people are trying to cut costs, AI just is like this beautiful marriage in this, in this environment of like, all right, this is an easy way to cut costs uh, at scale. Mm. What is the difference between automation and AI? Uh, excellent question. I think that there's um, there's a huge overlap between the two. I think AI is uh, a, a technology that allows us to automate prediction, for example, as we were talking earlier, allows us to automate workflows. Um, and automation can be rules-based. So getting into kind of the, the weeds of what is AI versus what is not AI. Rules-based automation is not AI. It's basically, if it's a decision tree, if this, then that, and if that, then this, uh, that's not AI. Um, but like when you move into to machine learning and, and, and true AI, there, on the surface, it'll look the same. There is a, an, an element of automation, um, but uh, it's definitely different from the rules-based approach, mm. uh, but it's still AI. 
But in the, the key problem that I've got have been having with it so far, at least in the chat GPT version, but I guess it applies to all large language models is that the results aren't really like replicable. So I go to it one day, I have this, I have yeah. this, I have this prompt that I use. Excellent. Does it so well solve that? Yeah. And then the next day I go to it with that, with that same prompt, expecting it to do the same thing. Cause it's a machine. It should be recordable. And then it's wildly different and wildly uh, different in its utility. Is that, is that accurate? What do you, what do you think about that dilemma? Um, I think the dilemma you're, you're, you're speaking to is really that these, these machines, uh, these algorithms are learning. They're, con they're continuously learning. They're learning very quickly. Uh, so their answer is going to change. Uh, which is not great if you expect uh, repetition uh, uh, or you, you want the same output. Um, in the large language models, we're still trying to figure out like even how they work. I don't think a lot of folks don't fundamentally understand like how they work. Like why do they have emerging abilities? Uh, you know, these, like, these language models aren't trained to do math, for example, but they can do math. Sometimes it's you know, now we're seeing that they get it wrong for some reason. Like as they've evolved, they're getting it more wrong. But like of course that'll get fixed. Yeah. Um, but you know, how, how does, how does that work? And you know, we're still figuring out, um, how these things are, are, are working. Of course, like we don't have like a direct, direct access to like the under the hood, um, specs for like open AI, uh, in, in GPT, et cetera. Um, but there, it's a constantly evolving landscape. So there, it's not like a fixed thing, uh, yeah, that, that, that's just going to, I guess, pretty, you know, spit out the same answer every day, uh, for the next 10 years. Um, have you played around with the llama model? Is the llama model do we have do we have access to the like is the llama model also a black box as well or can people peer into its decision making? Is is are these LLMs black boxes because we can't actually understand them or are they black boxes because of the the ways they've been centralized? Uh, it's I think it's a lot of the latter. Uh, you know, Facebook is trying to take the approach of open source, uh, decentralized as much as possible. Um, versus like the open AIs and Thropics, et cetera, of the world. And, and there's value for sure in that open source approach, right? Like now you have people who can tinker with it, improve it, find the holes in it. So you no longer have just the employees in a closed loop model. You only have just the employees of that company trying to fix it and improve it. Now with the open source model, you have the rest of the world's genius to, to go and tinker with it and, and improve it and, and find the holes in it and, and plug those holes. Uh, so there's a lot to be said for that open source approach, for sure. Um, I, I do buy the, the, the PR behind it uh, that, you know, Mark likes to say that the, 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 the open source approach is, is more secure um, because you can have more people finding, finding holes in the, in the, in the model. Uh, um, fascinating. Uh, so now I'd love to talk about because I know that you're an investor and 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 you and you also invest in Latin America. What uh, and I'm also in Latin America. I'm not sure if I mentioned that right now, but I'm. Oh, I didn't I'm, know that. I'm in I'm in Brazil right now. Uh, and oh, cool. Florianopolis, the beautiful, uh, beautiful magical island. They call it the um, uh, island uh, Ilha Magia, which is uh, a uh, magic island. Um, and mm -hmm. uh, and it is definitely lives up to its. Uh, the namesake. Um, although I'll just tell a really quick, funny story. Uh, I was trying to, somebody had told me that Ilya de Magia was like, I had asked whether it was from the indigenous, like the, the actual, like people that lived here before, like whether it went all the way back or whether the name was a recent marketing. Um, marketing. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and then I asked, I think it was, I asked chat GPT and it said that it was indigenous. Um, so oh. it's that it goes all the way back to the, but then I was asking a local and they're like, no, 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 it's, it's not indigenous. Uh, in the nineties, huh. there was a famous soap opera in the United States called magic Island. 
uh, and <laughs> it somehow became popular in Brazil. And so they they named the the, the, the island. It's, always got to fact check the uh, fact check the the chat bots as well. Yes. Yeah, I love that GPT thinks that that's indigenous. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, 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 yeah. It's so proper from thirty years ago. Indigenous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and so very interesting being here in Brazil, I talk to Brazilians yeah. a lot. I speak Portuguese and I talk to a lot of people okay. and not many people are, are, they're aware of, L of LLMs. They're aware of chat GPT, not really using it. Um, but I'm curious from your perspective of kind of investing in Latin America, how are the founders using it? Um, like, can you talk more about it? I don't have a very specific thing, but like, what's the yeah. evolution of AI and in, inside of Latin America? Uh, yeah, excellent question. So my fundamental belief is that we're seeing, and we talked a little bit about this, is that AI is becoming a sustaining technology in the US where the incumbent players who have all the data, they're just using this to, to increase their moat uh, around their businesses. In Latin America, you don't have strong incumbents. And so mm. what, I, what I'm starting to see is that there, there's going to be more and more blue ocean for AI in, in Latin America, again, as a result of not having these incumbents. And so you're going to have more space for new entrants to come in and piece together the data, find, get access to the data somehow, um, because there is no big player that has it, um, and, and then make an impact. And so that, I think that's the most exciting about AI in Latin America. It's still very early innings. Um, when I look at, uh, for example, accelerators in Latin America, you, the companies coming out of them, it, it's still is very different from like Y Combinator, YC right now, something like 50%, if not more of the companies are AI companies. In Latin America, it's just not the case. Like you, it's still a small landscape, but it's going to grow, I think, very quickly as as people see that there's more and more opportunity there. Um, so that's what I've been seeing, and, I, and I'm really excited for it to to develop over the next year or two. Mm, that's very cool, uh, and it reminds me of something I've been thinking since the late 2000s was seeing things like M-Pesa arise in Africa and M-Pesa for the listeners who don't know, it's like a way of doing um, money transa transactions on SS um, SMS. They basically uh, were five years ahead of Venmo. And actually interesting enough that Brazil is the first country that's actually instituted a uh, government run um, uh, currency that goes mobile to mobile with no fees. Um, and so actually like Brazil is now leading the, the pathway in, in terms of, in terms of payments. It was, it was crazy how quickly it happened. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and so M-Pesa started in Africa, um, and you kind of jumped the West in terms of its ability because of another thing that you just mentioned where the most, the business moats weren't already there. Um, and so I kept on thinking that's going to happen in, in, in developing countries as well. Yeah. And so it's a very interesting to hear that the AI thing, but, um, uh, but I would say like, wouldn't, don't banks, banks already have that data here in, 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 in Latin America. What are some other sectors that haven't been fully built out? What, where do you get that thesis from that, that they haven't actually, um, that the, that nobody has this data yet? Um, so an interesting example with the bank. So for example, uh, the issue with Latin America is that it's fragmented, right, from a country perspective. You have many countries, you don't have many banks that are cross country, right? You have um, um, 
uh, in Latin America, BBVA, BBVA, like that's probably one of the, the more dominant uh, international banks. It's a Spanish bank, but has a big presence like in Mexico, Colombia and other places. But most most companies are not cross border. Mm. Uh, and so there isn't a cross border entity that has data across multiple countries and populations. Yeah. Um, and I think that's that's one of the interesting elements uh, there in, in, in the financial services uh, space, for example. Uh, and then, then that just like plays itself out across a different thing. Uh, much of like whatever you want to call it, like an insure tech or uh, e-com, et cetera. Like there's just a lot of spaces that where there aren't many businesses that cross, um, that cross borders. Yeah. Um, another interesting kind of factoid that plays into this is in Latin America, 70% of businesses don't have websites. They actually transact over WhatsApp. Yeah. WhatsApp yeah. conversational commerce is everything, which to Americans is probably bizarre. And they don't even know what I mean when I'm saying this, but like you literally want to make a restaurant reservation. You're texting with that restaurant on WhatsApp. You want to book your haircut. It is texting with that, you know, hair salon on WhatsApp. Uh, it, everything is done over WhatsApp. So you have these different um, just models of, and behaviors that, 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 are, that are very different from the U.S., um, and again, imagine a world where e-com, the way we think of e-com just is not websites, going to websites, it's talking to people. So now how does that get automated with chatbots, right? With AI chatbots and AI super agents. Like you're going to see a lot more of that probably taking off in Latin America where it's going to have a huge impact on, on, on people versus in the U.S. where conversational commerce doesn't really exist. Very uh, accurate. Um, I got two things to say. Well, first is that I booked a surf lesson today on WhatsApp. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, in Rio de Janeiro, I booked, booked it on WhatsApp. And I, as you said, it is every, everything I do is now on WhatsApp. When I come to Brazil, uh, it's just like, I find their WhatsApp number and that's how I get in its conversations one-on-one -on -one with people. And then we were on our offsite, uh, for invisible technologies, the company that I'm working with. And, uh, mm -hmm. we were in Barcelona and a taxi driver, um, I was telling him that we're working with AI and such. And, and he, uh, uh, he's like, oh, I just heard on the news about this company that's implementing um, a chatbot inside of WhatsApp. Um, and then I looked for it, I couldn't find it. Finally, I had to ask ChatGPT to find it for me. And then ChatGPT found it for me. And there's a company in Barcelona who's already implemented WhatsApp inside of, uh, inside of or uh, sorry, chatbot inside of WhatsApp. And so it's directly in there. It's very cool, very useful, but uh, it, it, it's, but I think their, their execution of it might not be that great. Um, but yeah, mm -hmm. very, uh, but it gave me the idea of what it's going to be like, and it's going to be yes. crazy to 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 have an intelligent agent that you're chatting with, just like you're chatting with another human being. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Hundred percent. And there's going to be a proliferation of these bots, and you know we'll see who wins. Uh, we've invested in one with just an amazing team uh, based out of Uruguay. Um, but yeah, it's going to be it's going to be an interesting landscape uh, over the next couple of years. Mm hmm. Um, are you only doing AI or are you doing other companies as well? We're AI first. So for us, that means like any business that's enabled by AI or has an AI product uh, or is AI infrastructure. Um, so there's there's a lot of businesses that that don't have to have like a front facing AI component. Like it doesn't have to be a, a chat interface with like some sort of uh, language model. Um, there's a lot of businesses that don't need that. That can just be AI enabled on the back end uh, that allow them to deliver better services, better products uh, at a lower cost, more efficiently, et cetera. And so we invest basically across that AI enabled all the way to that AI infrastructure um, spectrum.
Let's talk about that AI infrastructure because that sounds really interesting. Because I think most most of our listeners, if they've continued to listen to me after all the AI episodes I've done, uh, probably uh, are familiar with the chatbot, um, but they might not be familiar with the implications of having AI in the back end. Uh, when you say that, I think about like databases and um, kind of like building a product that AI somehow helps with. The other thing that comes to mind is that the programmers themselves are using AI to code. Um, mm -hmm. In in terms of that image that I just displayed, how is, is is that the whole scope of it, or are there other elements to the scope, or what are the important things in terms of like designing a product where AI could help? Uh, I think you touched on like some of the the big ones, and and it really the that infrastructure layer is everything from the chips themselves all oh, the way through yeah. through the the plumbing of how the AI, different AIs will interconnect. So for example, I met a company recently that's building like a plaid for AI. So how, how will these different agents interact? Like what is that plumbing going to look like? What are those mm. interfaces for them, those like data pipelines for, for those agents, right? So we're not going to see it. We're not going to feel it, um, but it's going to be there. It's going to be the um, back in the day, like 20, you know, 25 years ago, plus, you know, people were trying to figure out what, how the internet was going to get connected, right? Like what, what was the structure of that? We're in that stage of AI, like how are AIs going to interact? How are they going to communicate? Um, how are you going to verify identity? So for example, if I have a chatbot that's representing me uh, out in the world, how is that bot going to, how are the different bots going to know that, that yes, this bot represents yeah you know, Camilla, like, how do we know that? I think there's going to be interesting applications of blockchain and the marriage of blockchain and AI um, as my identity, for example, will be verified through some sort of blockchain mechanism as that AI is out there shopping for me or representing me, et cetera, out of the world. Um, but that's the kind of infrastructure that we still need to like figure out and and, and lay down. Uh, have you heard of Urbit before? No, it's not. Uh, so Urbit is a new, it's wildly, wildly ambitious. Uh, uh, they, they're recreating the whole internet from Unix uh, afterwards uh, with the idea of peer-to-peer uh, -peer networking built directly into the application layer and also the networking layer. Uh, so like the whole, it's a redesign, it's a whole new OS and it's it's functioning. You can go and use it and they have a whole new functional programming language. Um, but they they take they have a very interesting idea of this of this identity question, which is they've got um, the the networking protocol is basically galaxies, uh, the smallest amount of galaxies, stars, uh, and then planets. Um, and so uh, you basically you host your planet on a star, which hosts it on a galaxy, um, and then uh, and so then uh, the the each planet costs money. So the basic way is the similar. Okay. Way what Twitter just did, but with, with charging users to make sure that they're actually very real. Um, mm. and, uh, but, but they do it in a decentralized permissionless, uh, everybody has control over their own data. Um, and, uh, it's really interesting. It's got a lot of engineers who are all really, really passionate mm. about it. Um, uh, and are all designing stuff and learn, have learned the programming language. I've done a lot of episodes on it. Wow. Um, and, uh, so they have an interesting take on this 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 identification layer. Um, there's a lot of people thinking about this, but it, it, you know, then there's the world coin, which is kind of like the eye thing. You scan the irises, and and I've read a lot of things about that. And you know, there's I'm I'm still kind of creeped out about it. Although I've heard that you know I've heard that, heard that they they're not storing the actual information on on the thing, but still, I'm I'm not necessarily uh, on board with that that particular one, but um. What what's your what do you think is going to be the answer to this 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 identification layer? 
Um, I, again, I think it'll be some sort of blockchain-based solution. Yeah. I think the world coin thing, I, I'm also creeped out by it. Uh, and it surprises me that they didn't take the approach that Amazon did. So if you go to like Whole Foods, you're able to pay with your palm. Yeah. And they intentionally did your palm, not your fingerprints, because like, do you really want to give Amazon your fingerprints? That's terrifying. Mm. Um, but they did the palm. It's like, okay, that feels a little more comfortable. Like I don't use my <laughs> palm to the eyeballs. anywhere else. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So don't do the don't do fingerprints or, or eyeballs. Like that's, that's too much. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's really funny. Okay, so let's go back to that uh, AI infrastructure plumbing question because that, mm -hmm. that seems like it's very generative. Um, uh, so we've got all these agents who are running around. They're going to do stuff. They're not quite there yet right now, uh, but the plumbing for all of those agents is really necessary. Um, what about some other kind of plumbing things? Are there other other things that need to be set up in, in terms of making a world that we're, where AI is fluid? Yeah, like we need to we need to figure out a way to efficiently structure data or, or build mm -hmm. AI that doesn't require structured data yeah. in order to learn. So a lot of the world, we have, there's data everywhere, right? Like yeah. companies of all sorts and sizes have data, but it's not necessarily structured in a way that that uh, then AI can learn from. And so that creates this massive point of friction of like, okay, now I got to structure the data in such a way that like the you know these these machine learning algorithms can learn, et cetera. Um, so what, what's, what's the solution there? Do we develop AIs that don't that can learn from unstructured data or do we find more efficient ways of structuring the data? You know, to date, historically, we've like literally manually tagged things. So in the early days of computer vision, up until actually not even that long ago, you had you know, armies of people tagging like images. So like, this is a cat, this wow. is a dog, this is the nose of a dog. Like, literally people doing this for hundreds of thousands of hours right like wow. tagging the data um that doesn't that doesn't it's not like doesn't seem like a efficient way to scale right so what how can we get to a place where ai doesn't need unstructured data or how do we create databases where it's easy to structure the data uh in some sort of way like it, i think that is like something that we're trying to figure out because now we know that we've known for a long time you were talking about big data earlier basically it's always been about data the last 15 plus years right like data is the new oil now yeah. we now I think people get it. Now I think mainstream yeah. people get it. Yeah, data really is in your oil. Holy shit! You know? <laughs> um, but we still don't know how to like turn it into gasoline. Like we're still figuring that out. Interesting uh, in well, an I efficient way. I love that metaphor. Um, yeah, going from data is the new oil, and then how do you trans transform the oil into gasoline? And that's exactly where we are. Exactly like you said. There's a there's an interesting company called Unstructured. Mm -hmm. I, I think it is, and they're they're trying to break off a little piece, but I think we're still very early into this thing. It does seem like LLMs are kind of smart enough to uh, do data stuff, but I think that brings into the problem I mentioned earlier, which is the replicability of it. Um, mm -hmm. And this is actually a particular problem that I ran into. I was I was trying to get it, I I was trying to get it to categorize an AI tool according to a certain criteria, um, and so it did it great. Uh, for a while, uh, but then each time I would try to do it again, it would it would start hallucinating mm. and and doing a lot yeah. of things. So I, I, I think I, I don't I, I think we're it's like somewhere around there we're gonna get it, but I don't I don't think we're there yet. Um, yeah. When you said the you were they were tagging dogs and cats and doing this manually and stuff, was that to train these algorithms or no? That yeah. was so that was to train these algorithms, and now that's probably over, basically, right? 
Yeah, so you have these like huge image sets. This was back in like ImageNet, and this, this is kind of the earlier days of, of, and by earlier days of computer vision, I don't mean like 70 years ago, which is probably the, the accurate description of early days, but I mean yeah. like the last 20 years. Uh, um, you had to, uh, these researchers were really tagging the images in order to train the models, to learn, to differentiate between whatever it was, a dog and a cat, a human and a dog, whatever it was. And eventually they got to the place where they could do that. And, and, and this was like the, the genesis, by the way, of also self-driving cars, because mm. cars have to like be self-driving cars have to be able to identify the thing, their environment. Um, you know, a, a lot of self-driving is, is using computer vision. Uh, and some of it's using LIDAR, but like computer vision is like a huge element of, of, of some self-driving modes. For example, like uh, uh, um, uh, Tesla's are famously are not using LIDAR. Um, they're using a lot of computer vision. So how do you how do you teach these models what each thing is what is a stop sign you know what is a pedestrian all that kind of stuff um, and it has applications across everything that is computer vision so when you when all these models all these data sets got tagged um, it wasn't just for that specific uh, use case necessarily mm -hmm. now like these these libraries can be used to train anything right you have security cameras this is awesome I think thing that's been going viral recently of uh, this company that watches it's a camera inside like a Starbucks and it can watch it's the starbucks baristas essentially make coffee and then can count the number of coffees that each barista is making and basically then tell you which employees are more productive than others um, that's all using computer vision to say this is a human and this is a coffee and like these are this is the machine and the interaction between those three et cetera et cetera et cetera how to differentiate between the customer which is on the other side of the counter all of that uh you know it's computer vision uh it's all ai but it dates back to back in the day when all these data sets were getting tagged Interesting. Uh, and there's still tagging that goes on. Uh, but, you know, again, figuring out how to turn that oil into gasoline. Yeah. Um, it made me think because it, it goes back to the senses. And I did a really interesting interview that may, you may be interested in. Maybe my listeners have already listened to with the CEO of Numenta. Um, and what they're doing is they're taking AI um, learnings from neuroscience and applying those neuroscience learnings back to AI. And, you know, most people probably know that the neural network started in the 1940s, 1960s, that the neural network that was uh, learned through neuroscience and then convolutional mm -hmm. neural networks as well were, uh, were basically from neuroscience. But then once the GPUs started to pick up in the 90s, um, the they they stopped using uh, neuroscience to back up to create new things basically because the computation got so good, um, and so this company Numenta is basically bringing that back in and and they've 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 figured out a way to actually start training some of these uh, neuroscience backed algorithms on CPUs mm. instead of GPUs, which is really interesting if you know that the GPUs oh, are yeah out of out of uh, out of stock everywhere um, yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah and so it goes back to this idea that you have these the the we're trying to create intelligence and that intelligence uh, is a lot of it's influenced by our own human intelligence. And so much of that has to do with our senses and the, the mm -hmm. sense that you just mentioned is, is vision. I guess it's so crazy. I guess that LLMs are, are the sense that they're using isn't vision. It isn't all these other things. It's almost like the executive um, part of the brain, which I wouldn't even consider a sense. Maybe it's like a, um uh, right. it, like it's but it's it's we jumped jumped straight to the intelligence part of it without doing any sort of the embodied um uh sensorial mechanisms but as you were talking about uh training the computer vision i was like i wonder if we're going to start to train it to do all these other things like i guess a lot of this is uh, a lot of the other senses like other animals have like infrared vision mm -hmm. or um 
uh, or just like all the ways that we can, that any form of life has, uh, has mm -hmm. navigated or categorized or, or understood the world. I wonder how many of these things we're going to, we're going to, um, put into this intelligent agent. What do you, what do you think about that? Like, are, have you already seen, uh, examples? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very, very, very good, uh, question and topic to touch on. I think what we've seen with LLMs is yes. How do we, uh, how do we interact with a vast store of knowledge to get predictions? Uh, and we interact mm -hmm. through language because language is how humans, how our species interact. Other species interact in other ways through like uh, chemicals mm -hmm. or body language. We interact through verbal communication. Yes, 90% of our communication is also body language, but but the written and spoken word is the is what we think of as the primary mode of communication. And so that's why these language models are so powerful for, for the for the for the for the the mainstream to get like wow AI is so powerful because yes now you can talk to it so that's one thing it's basically like the reasoning how do we interact with this sort of reasoning agent the what you're getting at I think is 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 huge it's the, the embodied senses I think will be the next frontier of mm. AI how do we build a really humanoid robots so I mm. recently met an extraordinary founder that is building humanoid robots and part of what they're doing is building the, the capacity for touch and sensing the, 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 that sense of touch. And so then what, why, like, um, why is a really good question? Why would we want a robot or an AI to have the sense of touch? Well, sense of touch gives you a lot of information, right? Is this something hot or cold? Is it close to me? Is it sharp? Is it soft? Uh, if I can't see something, uh, so example, for example, I'm touching the back of my chair. I know that it is, it is there, but I can't see it. So computer vision wouldn't be able to help me here, but I'm touching and I'm getting information through the sense of touch. Um, it can also help me with danger, right? Like this is so hot, it's going to hurt me. It is painful. So touch is a very important one. And then I kind of touched on the other one being like olfactory senses. Like what can we get from the environment through like the ability to detect the chemicals in the air, everything, like molecules, these are all chemicals. Oh, that's, how, that's how our olfactory you know, system works. What, what data is available there through, through that? Um, so I think that'll be the next frontier of, of AI is being able to receive this information and then again, make predictions, judgments, and then eventually actions. Uh, you know, sense of a series of actions based on that information. Mm -hmm. That is super interesting, and it went. We're gonna we're gonna go out of left field maybe, and uh, and bring in like because then the ultimate kind of jump that goes to that is okay. We we're creating this intelligence that has this linguistic reasoning ability, may have this embodied uh, ability very soon, and may have senses and ways of of navigating the world that are far far like different than the unit than the human. And then there's that there's that question that comes back is like, well, then once the brain is then directly connected with the computer um, is then given these powers to basically have like all sorts of crazy intelligence. That's that that that, that brings into the, the sort of the matrix world um, and uh, not necessarily the matrix world. A lot of a lot of science fiction has, has gone into yeah. this, this particular thing. And it's just so wild, like. But that's that's probably on a twenty year time frame, maybe. But still, what what do you think? Do you think that's just around the corner? Or do you think that's a while out? Um, you know, time frames are are a difficult question these days. You know, a year ago, GPT didn't even exist. ChatGPT didn't exist. Yeah, uh, came out like November of last year. And, and look at all the advancements we've made since then, and the disruptive. Uh, to some extent, disruptive effect it's had uh, in the world. It's really, again, it's become a sustaining technology for a big, it's big business, but like it's 
it's become a massive mind share in, in the public uh, eye. Um, and that was nine months. That was less than nine, uh, what, yeah, so November of last year, nine months ago or so, um, maybe a little bit more. Um, so what's going to happen in five years? I don't know. Like things are moving at a pace that I've never seen before in technology. I don't think anyone's really seen before in technology. I think we were used to things being like, oh yeah, in five years, we'll have better phones. Uh, now it's like, whoa, <laughs> a few months later, there's an update uh, to, to GPT and like the world changes. Yeah. Uh, so I'm now hesitant to say it'll be 20 years from now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wake up 36 months later, we have humanoids. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's just going to get it's going to get back to science fiction, basically, after the it feels like a little bit of a of a lull for the past 10 years. I don't mean lull. I mean, like a lull. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, it's just like there hasn't been there's been some really interesting breakthroughs in terms of like our philosophy and our relationship to technology and maybe even not breakthroughs, but maybe even degradations and such. But uh, um, uh, now but it now feels like we're quickly moving back into that science fiction of the 1960s and the 1970s where things are going to change. What do you think about deep tech? Do you have any thoughts on deep tech? I know you're not you're not an investor in those things, but. Um, are you are you in the Bay Area right now? I am in the Bay Area. Yeah, I'm based in San Francisco. It feels like there's sort of like a renaissance of deep tech as well. That really, really science fiction stuff, like um, mm -hmm. putting as uh, uh, um, solar panels in space and satellites and all this different stuff, and and new forms of energy. Is that accurate? Are you noticing anything like that there? Uh, yeah, definitely seen it. As I mentioned, like this this humanoid robot yeah. company, you know, it's literally a garage in Palo Alto, right? Like it's 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 your classic kind of Silicon Valley story. Um, I'm definitely seeing more of that. I think people are, are dreaming and thinking big. Um, I don't know if it, maybe, I think, I, I think there was definitely a period maybe in the last 10 years where people were just building the, the next mobile app that was like, whatever, trying to be the next Instagram. Uh, and now we're starting to see people maybe a little bit more tackle the tough problems, the big, big, meaty, hard problems. Mm. Um, and I don't know if this is like a major trend or not, but but it's certainly exciting to see uh, to your point, yeah, you are seeing a lot more space companies, and and those companies, by the way, there's a lot of them based in LA, uh, mm. not even in, in the Bay, they're in LA. Um, yeah, space, biotech, really cool biotech companies uh, coming up using AI to 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 buy new drugs, uh, et cetera, new therapies. A lot of yeah, there's definitely a lot of uh, hard deep tech stuff going on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um. So we could go back to that AI question of programming. Well, what, what, like what in the past week or two, besides AI, like what's, what's been keeping your mind kind of alive in terms of your research? And we could even talk about philosophy or like, what are some big, some big questions you've been pondering over the past couple of weeks? I think a lot about how this is all going to unfold. Um, I think ultimately my job as an investor is to try and predict the future. I think that's that's really your role as an investor is to mm. understand how people are going to live, work, and play in ten years, twenty years, because that's ultimately when the businesses that you see today are going to grow and into and, and serve you know their products and services to people down in that timeline. Um, so I'm often thinking about like, well, where are we in this in this revolution, um, which to me feels like the next step in human evolution. Mm. Um, mm. It is it isn't a revolution just like the agriculture revolution and the industrial revolution. But in many ways, it feels tied to our own human evolution um, mm. and, and how we are going to exist as a species, creating a new intelligence. You know, people we talk a lot about AGI and, and superintelligence uh, as being you know, potential outcomes of this, uh, of, of all of this work. Um, so I think a lot about like, well, what what does that look like? How does that unfold? Where are the opportunity spaces uh, for generational businesses to be built? And so again, like going back to my 
my my earlier comments on Latin America, I think there's a lot of like blue ocean available in, in Latin America for people to to invest in, in generational businesses there. Um, you have to be a little bit more thoughtful, I think, in the U.S. As I was mentioning again, going back to that like big data thing, it's the big companies that have all that that oil. Uh, so what are the little spaces where mm -hmm. where there's opportunity? I think a lot about that. Um, and I think that's just the job of, uh, of an investor, a good investor, right? Like uh, to try and have a thesis about where things are going. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about it from a sort of a, a philosophical lens as well. Cause what does, like you mentioned the agricultural revolution, you know, I think it was in the Neolithic times, I think 4,000 BC, mm -hmm. 5,000 BC. Um, then we have this, the, the invention of writing that might've been back then too, mm -hmm. or maybe a little bit later. And then we have this kind of time in 400 BC where the Greeks started to really um, play around with uh, new forms of governance and, you know, the Roman empire and then the dark ages and then the, you know, a, a rise of the enlightenment um, printing press. Um, and, and, and now we're here, but after 300 years of pretty substantial growth, and now it's just like the, 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 the gasoline has been put on the fire and it just feels like it's going to be like even step functions more like maybe every year mm -hmm. as we've been discussing. Um, I, you know, what do you think in terms of, do you feel stressed by that? Do you, do you feel only excited by that? Um, uh, what's your kind of emotional reaction to this just age of acceleration that we're entering? I think it's such an exciting time to be alive. Um, and, and, and certainly be at, in the heart of it in, in, in San Francisco. Uh, but really being anywhere in the world alive today is, is an exciting time as a result of all of this. Um, it's interesting. I, I recently saw this this comment by Sergey Brin, you know, co-founder of Google. He he's been showing up at hacker houses, the AI hacker houses, and someone asked him, like, "What's why are you out here? Like, you're basically retired. What, what's bringing you out?" And he said, "Like, this is the most exciting thing that's happened in my lifetime, and I think in in human history. Like, I want to be involved, and it's mm -hmm. what's brought him out of retirement, right? Mm -hmm. And I totally get that, right? There's just there's almost a fire hose of information and development in AI that's like hard to keep up with, um, which is overwhelming on one hand, but also so exciting that like there's all this human progress being made so quickly um, that it's hard to, again, as we were going, we were talking about earlier, like hard to predict the timeline of how this is all going to play out. Uh, but it is really science fiction come to life. And people often ask me like, well, how do you know what's going to happen? And I tell them like, listen, like a lot of a lot of what's happening has been predicted. A lot of what we have imagined as a species, we have we have we've created through arts and and literature and you know films and all of this stuff. There's things that we've wanted. There's things that we've craved as a species that we're now like bringing to life um, through AI, right? So, mm. so these things aren't they're not like shockingly new ideas necessarily, but they are they are science fiction come to life. Mm. And it's really interesting, particularly with you having the experience with Facebook. Um, uh, there is a sort of a, 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 the, like, n it doesn't feel like most of the science fiction authors predicted something like Facebook. They definitely predicted <laughs> something like the internet. Um, they definitely mm -hmm. predicted stuff like AI, uh, but they didn't really predict something like Facebook, which is so interesting uh, because it was, it is revolutionary. Uh, and, and like, uh, but it's not, it, but it's not a super deep tech kind of change. I mean, there was a lot of technology that was built around right. that. What, what's your, like, if you were to describe what Facebook did technologically, what, what did they do? Uh, excellent question. So 
Facebook wasn't the first social network. It was like the sixth or seventh social network. You know, there was Friendster, MySpace, Six Degrees. There was a bunch of social networks that came before Facebook. Um, and there was a couple of reasons why Facebook took off where they didn't. And, it, and you can fundamentally say it was like go to market. Um, their go to market mm -hmm. was different and, and, and it, you know, in a way that made it go viral where the other ones didn't. Did Facebook have better design? A little bit, but like, frankly, design isn't going to make or break a business. But the the way that they got started as like a Harvard only, then Ivy League only, then college only social network made it something that people really wanted to participate in. And then what made it go really viral was tagging of friends in photos. Hmm. So this tiny little feature that no other social network had done, but allowed you to upload a photo and then and then tag a friend who was either on Facebook already or not. And if they weren't, you could basically say, hey, here's this person. And then they're going to get an email like, hey, you've been tagged in, in, in Facebook. Do you want to go and look at the photo? Okay, now I have to sign up and go look at this photo because I have FOMO. I want to know what, what just got uploaded. So that was a huge viral feature for Facebook um, beyond its go-to-market uh, structure uh, that made it made it what it is today eventually, right? And, and that's why it won the social media awards in, in a way that others, others didn't. So was it revolutionary technology? I don't know about revolutionary. Uh, did it connect the world? Yeah. Um, but, but at the end of the day, like, it wasn't like, I don't think that it, you know, fundamentally changed the human race and, and like mm -hmm. move our species forward necessarily the way that mm -hmm. AI is certainly going to do. Um, yeah. Very interesting <laughs> insight. Uh, uh, but the, the, well, I'd like to take it back to what we were first talking about automation because Facebook did do some interesting things in mm -hmm. terms of technology and in terms of automation. I think maybe the big technological thing that they did was the databases, probably the, the network centers and stuff. But I guess a, a lot of other people did it where the, I, I, they probably figured out how to scale better than a lot of other yeah. things, right? At it from a technological standpoint. Yeah, so I think there's there's two two things that they did interestingly on the te purely technology side, and and I'm excluding uh, Facebook Rally Dabs and the you know the acquisition of Oculus and all that stuff, the hardware, mm -hmm. um, really keeping it to to, the, to Facebook itself. One um, was actually the news feed. So the news feed mm -hmm. is a machine learning based algorithm. Oh. A, a lot of people don't realize that this is one of the earliest quote unquote earliest. Um, uses of mainstream AI, like the, the people that was touching everyone's lives on a daily basis, right? So okay. you logged on, you use the newsfeed. AI was was actually behind the newsfeed and showing you what it is that you wanted to see. It was predicting, yeah. again, going back yeah, to these yeah, being yeah, prediction yeah. agents, yeah. Mm -hmm. it was predicting what you wanted to see. So that was actually really revolutionary. But, but the notion of a newsfeed and the fact that it's AI powered. Uh, and then, yeah, we can go down to like the, the hardware path of the data centers and, and being essentially controlling their data in a way that uh, than, than a lot of other businesses hadn't thought about. And again, because they were they deal with so much data that they realized in order to harness it efficiently and quickly and serve it quickly, they had to really own that tech stack. Uh, and they yeah, did. Interesting. Yeah, 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 that's super interesting. And then the the example of like Dropbox is somebody who didn't didn't actually go and and own the data centers and 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 really own that technology. They were uh, like to use the AI uh, terminology. They were a, a wrapper on on uh, a wrapper over. Uh, the database technologies that all the other companies had built for the cloud computing and such. Um, yeah, that's an interesting example. Actually, it's a really good example of a UX UI um, layer on top of on top of those databases. Right, it, mm -hmm. being able to access your information in the cloud. The cloud existed. It was like really impossible to be a, a regular, you know, mainstream person and use the cloud to 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 yeah, as a repository for your information. And they yeah. made that really easy. Right, and then. For for especially for collaborative you know 
uses of a database. Like I put a, a file in a folder and now I can also share that folder with a bunch of people and they can see it too. Um, that was, that was pretty, pretty, pretty revolutionary for the first time uh, uh, in a way to, to share information that, that didn't exist before. Why didn't, why didn't Facebook become a cloud uh, uh, company? Um, I think they, they've really been, I think what Mark is really good at is uh, focusing, um, yeah. really, really, really focused on building network effects around you, you as a person, not like my files and the information and my work output, but like my identity, the, who I am, my photos, my pictures, my, my connections to my friends and families, building Building a business out of that, I, I think, mm -hmm. was was more important. And really, the, the mission the mission was to is to connect people around the world, not to connect data, not to be a repository of data, but to connect yeah. people. That's that's super interesting. Um, okay, cool. So we got about five minutes left. Um, so much we could talk about still. Um, <laughs> uh, so AI automations. What, what do you think? Well, what are you most excited? I, I don't know if you can talk about this, but what are you most excited yeah. about in terms of from an investment angle? Um, like, can you talk about any specific companies that you're really excited about, or, um, or uh, just like you know, we've talked about Latin America, but that's a very broad kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Anything that you can talk about in terms of um, specific companies or technologies that you're really interested in, in investing in? Yeah. So thematically, um, you know, we touched on. AI being like a prediction prediction engine. Mm -hmm. I'm very excited about businesses that are going to take the next step uh, into action, into judgment and then action. So the AI doesn't just predict what you as a human in the loop want to see or do or know, uh, but it's then going to act on the information it, it itself predicts uh, and does something with that. I think that is, whoa, like <laughs> crazy, crazy big leap forward when you think about it to truly have autonomy over the entire decision-making process, uh, again, from prediction to judgment to, to action is super exciting. Uh, one of the first companies to try that was, was is Adept. Uh, they launched last year or the year before. We're gonna see a lot more of that um, come out. And I, I'm very excited to, to invest in that, that kind of uh, progress in AI. Uh, in terms of companies, um, again, that humanoid uh, robot company I mentioned was really exciting. Uh, I'd never seen I had never really seen like a, a a true humanoid robot that that has AI built into it from yeah. from the get go, from the ground up, mm. um, and just the things that it's going to be able to do are so exciting uh, for humanity. Uh, there's a lot of um, jobs that we don't want to do, or jobs that are dangerous, or jobs that that like that are just like tedious, and we're just going to have robots do that for us, and it's going to help a lot of people that need help. Um, whether it's, you know, your everyday family that needs an extra hand in the house or the elderly or infirm or whatever it is, like, it's going to be very exciting to see um, AI native robots uh, help us uh, in our daily lives. That's a mind-blowing thought. Yeah. Um, so those those agents, AI, it feels like I was watching a video of, um, what's his name? Andre Carpathia, I think his name is, the, the mm -hmm. AI guy. And um he was talking about how the evolution to LLMs, how they started with the agent idea back then too, and then quickly in order to play video games, uh, and then quickly realized that wasn't going to work, but we'll just focus on these <laughs> LLMs. 
And then as soon as the LLMs came out, then we started at baby AGI and auto GPT as kind of very hyped, you know, like, oh, this is going to happen next month. Like we're, we've got agents <laughs> coming on the road, you know, like they're here. Mm-hmm. Um, but it seems like it's much more complicated. I guess the final question would be, what is the difference between an agent, autonomous agent and full AGI? Because if the thing can go through all of those three different things, um, uh, uh, prediction, judgment and decision, action, uh, then, um, then what separates that from like AGI basically? Uh, that's a good question. I, I think there's been a lot of, there hasn't been a firm a consensus on what is the difference between like AGI and super intelligence, for example. Mm. So I think we need to like firm up, like what we mean by some of these, some of these things. And I'm starting to see some consensus building around AGI basically being, have, having the abilities of the reasoning abilities of a human, right. Mm-hmm. Um, and the self-learning abilities of a human super intelligence, then going to the next step and saying it is mm-hmm. much better than a human. So mm-hmm. it's starting to, it's like a continuum there. Right. Mm-hmm. So these autonomous bots, like will be limited to certain roles, right? Like we've seen a lot of agents do specific uh, jobs and wrote, you know, uh, tasks. Um, That's different than from like AGI, which is more generalized, right? Like it's no longer contained to a specific niche. Uh, And then of course, super intelligence is the the extreme of that. It's like, all right, now it's just smarter than than anyone in the human race Mm -hmm. uh, and and can learn faster than anyone in the human race. So that's, 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 that's the extreme. But I think that's how it's starting to shake out in terms of how people are defining these things. That's really good. Uh, that's really cool. Uh, but it's the first kind of like simple explanation of a question that a lot of people go really abstract with is is that <laughs> you've got you've got the reasoning ability of a human being, uh, and GPT seems to have that reasoning ability. Uh, and then you have autonomous agents within sp- certain niches that can, you know, like buying a plane ticket or something like that, that can do that right. in a way that's that's very, that can take input from a natural language in, um, input and then actually go and do that task. Uh, and then you got the super intelligence that, that not only reasons like a human being, not only is autonomous, but is far better than both of those, those, those different things right. and so on and and that's a that's a world that the that a lot of people are afraid of. I guess yeah. One more one more question. Last few minutes. Uh, are you afraid of it at all? Uh, I'm not afraid of it. Um, I I don't know like how this is going to shake out in terms of is this going to you know destroy us. I, I I think there is yes. I think that possibility is true. But we also developed nuclear weapons and developed the ability to destroy ourselves. Then uh, maybe it's just part of part of quote-unquote technological progress that we develop things that have that capacity to to end our own species uh and maybe after ai there's something else i don't know who knows right that 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 has the capacity to do that but uh so i'm not afraid i think these things anything uh, that has power has also great destructive power potentially right so it's it's just inherent in in the progress of technology uh to that these things will happen from time to time we will we will develop things that are scarily powerful and then can't hurt us. Excellent. Thank you for that. Um, and so if any of the listeners are interested in what you're doing, um, anything you want to share with them about what you're doing, any obstacles you're facing, any kind of uh, things that you want to get put out there so that people listening may be able to help? Um, you know, happy to happy to take any any pitches from folks working in AI. Again, my firm is Perceptive Ventures. We invest a pre-seed and seed across uh, AI companies in the US and Latin America. Um, I think it's a great time to be a founder. I'm, I could not encourage people more to be a founder right now. Uh, there's a lot of amazing talent 
that's been laid off from you know very talent dense companies like Google and Facebook, et cetera. Uh, so it's a great time to find co-founders and, and build something new. It's uh, if anything, it's getting easier to be a founder. You no longer have to know how to code. There's all of no code, low code, and of course, mm -hmm. GPT can be your co-pilot uh, through a lot of this. And so uh, it's a great time to be a founder. So I encourage people to do that. Cool. Thank you so much. All right. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Stuart Alsop, I-I-I. Also, don't forget to subscribe on Spotify or iTunes for every weekly episode that I publish on Monday mornings. Hope you have a great day.